Hello, and thanks so much for tuning into the Digging Deeper podcast with Pastor Ken Vance. This podcast is designed to go a step beyond the Sunday teaching with a more in-depth look at the topic Pastor Ken shared with us this past weekend. So whether you're on your way home from work or pouring yourself a fresh cup of coffee, we hope you enjoy today's podcast. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode. And now, here's Digging Deeper with Pastor Ken Vance. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Pastor Ken, the senior pastor at Vertical Church, and this is our weekly podcast, Digging Deeper with Pastor Ken. I'm so glad you're taking the time to tune in and to listen to these recordings. I truly hope that they are a blessing to you. These podcasts are designed to go beyond Sunday morning, to dig deeper into God's Word. They're for all of those who truly want to be established in their faith and to know God's Word at a level that they can actually take it out and apply it in their lives. And so I'm excited because this month we've been talking about developing a personal vision for our life. And that's so important because why? All of us are heading somewhere in life but we need to be heading somewhere on purpose. The key scripture for these discussions is found in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs was written by a man named Solomon. He was the son of the famous King David over Israel, but Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. And Solomon in Proverbs 29:18 had this insight. He said, where there is no prophetic vision, people cast off restraint. Now think about that for a moment. We've already discussed the fact that vision inspires discipline, and it's true. Why? Because it takes discipline to truly reach goals. It takes discipline to reach destinations in life. And all of us are heading somewhere. We all have a destination in mind, and vision is when you have a clear sight at where you're going and how you're going to get there. And he says, without a prophetic vision, People cast off for strain. In other words, they don't marshal the resources necessary to achieving those ends. One translation of this verse says, without vision, people perish. In other words, they can go through aimlessly in life, never really having purpose, never really having a meaning to it. And, it's, and it's so, it can be so discouraging. But I want to focus on this point where he said, where there's no prophetic vision. When we talk about prophetic vision, we're talking about God's design, God's plan, what he uh, destined each of us to accomplish in life. Because whether we realize it or not, we were all created by God for a purpose. When God designed us, he had something in mind for us to achieve and to do. And life will absolutely never really make sense in totality until we're doing what we were created to do. There's nothing that, that, that uh, matches that. When we are actually living and doing what we were created and designed by God to do, there's a sense of fulfillment. There's a sense of accomplishment that there's nothing that can, that can rival it. And that's why it's important that we catch the prophetic vision, that we understand what God's design and plan is for our life. Because the clearer that becomes, the more we can achieve those ends. And that's what we were created to do. And so when we talk about vision, the definition I've given for these discussions for vision is this. Vision is a clear mental picture of what could be 
fueled by what should be. You see, a clear mental picture of what could be is a preferred future. It's a better end. It's somewhere we'd like to achieve and to do, something we'd like to accomplish in these fronts, but without the second component of it. Because prophetic vision, vision from God, has to have both components, what could be and what should be. And if only we have what could be, it can be just a whim or a wish or a passing uh, thought, but we don't necessarily go after. We don't necessarily marshal all that's necessary, the energy and the motivation to achieving it. But when you have that second component, what should be, what should be represents the moral imperative. It represents the determination that this is what I'm going to do. This is where I'm going and I'm going to do, and I'm going to achieve this no matter what it costs. Why? Because it should be. It's that driving factor behind. So we must have a vision that's a clear mental picture of what could be fueled by what should be. And so today, we'll be talking about a big picture. What is it the main thing that we're looking to achieve in life? Because life is is multifaceted and, and we have goals in all the different facets of life, or at least we should have a vision for the roles that we play, but what's the overall thing that God designed, that God desires that we achieve? What was the purpose for which we were created? Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship, created anew in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has prepared for us, for us to walk in. And so it's important that we recognize God designed us for a purpose and we need to know what that is and understand that and and pursue that purpose. You know, we come into the beginning of the year. What's amazing to me is that we always generally at the beginning of the year do self-evaluation and we become sometimes painfully aware of where we're not. And so in those ends, that's why people set out and achieve or, or set out what for themselves uh, New Year's resolutions. And we figure where we're not, we're not thin enough, we're not healthy enough, we're not smart enough, we're not eating well enough, we're not in shape enough, or whatever the situation that we look at. And often what happens at the beginning of the year is we set out on a path of self-improvement. It's why businesses like vitamin shops and health food stores and health clubs and debt counselors do such booming business at this time of year because we set out, we want to be a better person. But let me tell you this, if we get caught up in just simply trying to be a better version of ourselves, we can become self-absorbed. And if we're honest, think about this with me for a moment. Just think about this. The people that we admire most in life were not people who set out to be better versions of themselves. No, in essence, they were people who set out to make a difference in the world. That's what they devoted themselves. That's what they worked towards. And that's what they're remembered for. And so listen to this. If we want to be a better person, we need to do something to make the world a better place. We'll say that again. If we want to be a better person, we need to do something to make the world a better place. In our discussions today, I want to talk about a man named Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah lived in, he was a, he was a Jew who was living in the empire of Persia. And give you a little history before we read, because we're going to look, there's a book that's written with his name on it in the Hebrew scriptures, the book of Nehemiah. And the time frame, let me give you a little history leading up to this point. Israel had been uh, uh, defeated by the nation of Babylon. Babylon invaded uh, Israel, and they took the people of Israel captive and led them off into Babylon. At that time, Babylon had been led by their leader, uh, their king, Nebuchadnezzar. And so he had conquered Israel. He imported the people back into uh, Babylon. But when he died, his son took over, and then his grandson took over because his son didn't remain uh, in power for very long. And during his grandson's, uh, a man named Belshazzar, his leadership over Babylon, Babylon was defeated by the Persian Empire. And at that time, the Persian Empire, it was, it was a combination. It was the Medo-Persian Empire, and it was led by a man named Cyrus. And why this is interesting is because two different aspects of Jewish scripture, two different prophets had spoken with respect to this. One, Jeremiah had said that Israel would only be captive for 70 years. And number two, uh, Isaiah had prophesied that a man named Cyrus, God would use to give the order to rebuild his temple. And so in essence, when Cyrus came to power over the Medo-Persian Empire, now occupying Babylon, Cyrus said to the Jews who had been captive that they were free to go back. And he actually gave the decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So a man named Zerubbabel, who was a, uh, an offspring, one of, one of David's uh, uh, um, ancestors, he set out with the people of Israel to go back to reestablish the Jewish nation and to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But the work was difficult. When the Babylonians had defeated Israel, they had knocked down the walls. They had burned the city. They had destroyed it all. They destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. There was nothing but rubble. And so all the, although the Jews went back and began this process, the work was difficult. It was hard. It stalled. It stopped. And during this period, multiple different leaders um, in the Medo-Persian Empire arose. After Cyrus, a man named Darius came. And then, and this is where we're going to pick up in the story, the next ruler over this period was a man named Artaxerxes. He became the leader of the Medo-Persian Empire. And why this is important is because Nehemiah was the cupbearer. Even though he was a Jew, he didn't go back. Not all the Jews had returned um, with those that went back to rebuild the city of, of Jerusalem and the temple uh, in Jerusalem. There were many Jews that had remained in the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, in the book Esther, we see that uh, Mordecai, who became an important figure in the uh, uh, leadership of the Medo-Persian Empire, was a Jew. But here, in talking about Nehemiah, we're going to read Nehemiah 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Helikai. 
Now it happened in the month of Chiaz, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa. Susa at that time was the capital of, of the Medo-Persian Empire. He says, I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. Now, what's important here is that Nehemiah had actually been born in captivity. He had never seen the nation of Israel. He had never seen the city of Jerusalem. Because by this period of time, a long, long period had passed. This is, this is you know, well over 150 years beyond the time. Um, and so, picking up in verse 3, he, he said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. In other words, when the Israelis had gone back to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, they were able to rebuild the city, but it was in great peril because it had no defenses. All the other nations around it would raid it, would 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 leave them because at this particular point, they had been, been let captive. They didn't have an army. They didn't have defenses. So they were very, very vulnerable. And so there was great trouble for the people. And that's what Hananiah is bringing this report back to Nehemiah. There's no, there's no wall to defend the city of Jerusalem and the temple of their God. And so in essence, he gives them this report and look what happens next. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Notice this. When Nehemiah heard the condition of the people of, of, of Israel, the, his brethren, um, his people, when he heard the state of the city of Jerusalem, it broke his heart. It says he sat down and wept and mourned for days. And he, and he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And he said, O Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules, and the commands your, ser your servant Moses gave. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcasts and, and are in the uttermost parts of the earth, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, 
Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who have delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then the last phrase says, now I was cupbearer to the king. And so Nehemiah, what happened was when he heard this, it broke his heart. And that's a question that I want to ask all of us listening. What breaks your heart? Because it's something that I think we need to wrestle with. It's a question that we need to, to determine. What breaks our heart? What in our community? What in our society? What needs to change? What are we heartbroken about? What needs to be repaired, resolved, corrected, mended? See, what we're accustomed to, unfortunately, especially as Americans, when something is broken, when something is not right, we complain about it. But the problem is, is this, complaining doesn't change anything. Complaining doesn't move the situation. But what you need to begin to recognize is this, is that when we allow our heart to break, we, can, we are in a position for God to begin to move through us. Being heartbroken is a representation. Compassion comes from the heart. The word compassion literally means from the inwards. It's coming from the, from the very most central part of our lives. And when we're moved with compassion is when great things can be accomplished and done. And so when you ask the question, what breaks your heart? What could be and what should be? See, Nehemiah had a vision of what could be. He believed those walls in Jerusalem could be rebuilt, but he also believed they should be. There was a moral component that the people of God should not be a shame to the nations of the world, that they should be strong in the ends. And so this vision drove Nehemiah. His heartbreak caused him to fast and to pray and to seek God. And to ultimately, in Nehemiah's case, he went before the king and asked the king not only to release him from his service as his cupbearer, but to also uh, finance the trip back to Jerusalem, finance the rebuilding of the walls, and to provide him uh, security, you know, protection for their journey from the obstacles that they would have. And so in essence, that's huge because, again, Nehemiah was Jewish. He was serving in the court of the, um, you know, uh, of the, the king of the Persian Empire, Artaxerxes. And so that was a huge request. That was, that was amazing. But you see, God granted him that favor because he had a prophetic vision. He had a vision from God of what could be fueled by what should be. And it's important that we recognize that because God moves through compassion. The Bible says God is love. And love moves us. Love the divine flow of love, when we're willing to let love move us, because compassion is when love is in action. Compassion is actually an action that is 
that is, bro, it's, it's not just something we feel. It's something that what we feel causes us to do. True biblical compassion moves us to do things. And that's how God operates. That's how God works. God moves in our hearts. The Bible tells us that the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit. And that's why when we're willing to follow that, Jesus said, speaking of the Holy Spirit in John 7, he said, out of our innermost being would flow rivers of living water, speaking of the influence of the Spirit. And when when we allow our heart to be broken for what breaks the heart of God, then the Spirit of God can move us. Then the Spirit of God can lead us and we can achieve the purposes of God. Listen to this. Jesus, let's take a look at the ministry of Jesus for a moment because some of the greatest things Jesus accomplished through his ministry were the results of him being moved by compassion. It says in Matthew 9, In 36, it says, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. In other words, Jesus was moved with compassion for the lost. He told the disciples to pray the Lord of the harvest, that he would send laborers into the harvest field. In fact, in Mark's gospel, when he was referring to the same incident that Jesus was moved with compassion because the the multitudes were scattered as sheep without a shepherd. It says he began to teach them from them. So Jesus, his teaching ministry was fostered by this idea that uh, uh, he wanted to help the people who were aimlessly going through it and, and be their shepherd. Uh, Matthew 14, 14, listen to this. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. You see, Jesus had pulled away into a, into a solitary place to be alone. He had just heard the news of his cousin, John the Baptist, who had been beheaded. And Jesus took the disciples, and they got in a boat, and they went into a solitary place. But the, the multitudes followed them. And as soon as they arrived, there were crowds on the shores. But Jesus didn't get upset. He didn't get annoyed. He was moved with compassion, and he healed them. And so caring for the sick is a result of compassion. In Matthew 15, 32, it says, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now uh, continued with me for three days eating nothing. And I do not want them to go away hungry lest they faint on the way. This is what set up Jesus feeding the multitudes, breaking the bread and the fish and feeding the multitudes. It was an action of compassion. You see, I believe this, when we're willing to allow compassion to truly move us, when we're willing to allow a love to be so welled up in our heart because we're brokenhearted for the the situations of others, that God's greatest works can be done. God can do amazing things when we're willing because God is love. And when love is moving us, when love is guiding us, then nothing. Truly nothing is impossible. Compassion is a form of why uh, uh, forgiveness is given. Matthew 18, 27, And when the master of the servant was moved with compassion, he released him and forgave him of his debt. Matthew 20 says that Jesus was moved with compassion and touched the man's eyes, and immediately he, he received his eyesight. Mark 1, 41, Jesus was moved with compassion 
and touched his hand to the leper and said unto him, I am willing, be cleansed. Because the leper had come to Jesus, knelt down before him and said, I know you can, but will you? And Jesus made, made him know that not only could he, but he was willing to do so. Jesus believed that what could be should be. And so in essence, he was moved with compassion and brought that end. And so you see that some of Jesus' greatest works were the results of compassion. And what we have to begin to recognize, if we're true Christ followers, then we, this isn't something that we should blow off. This isn't something we should put aside because we're called to make a difference in our world. That's what it means to truly be a Jesus follower. We need to give up living for ourselves and live for something bigger than ourselves. Because listen to this. If we live for something more than ourselves, then we'll have more, uh, more than ourselves to show for ourselves when our life it reaches its destination. In other words, we need to be willing to live for more than ourselves. We need to be willing to go out of our way to let God influence the lives of others through us. We need to be moved with compassion. What breaks your heart? It could be homeless people. It could be hungry people. It could be so many different things. What breaks your heart? And so we need to realize because Jesus said this, Matthew 25, one of his parables, it's the parable of the sheep and the goats. And he's talking to believers here, and it's so critical that we understand this. I'm going to read it to you and comment as we go through. He said, When the Son of Man is come in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to the ones on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you do, for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And so in essence, as a follower of Christ, we need to begin to recognize that devotion to God through loving others is how Jesus directed us to live. We are called to make a difference in our world. We're called to go out and to fix what's broken. Because why? Jesus went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Jesus, the Bible said, came not into the world to be served, but to serve, to give himself. And the entirety of Jesus' life, Jesus lived for the benefit of others. And its essence, as Christ followers, 
We are the body of Christ. And so making a difference in our world is what we're called to do. And so again, I ask the question, what breaks your heart? The late David Wilkerson, that's known in many circles in Christian community, this is how his ministry, David, David Wilkerson was a, a pastor of a small Assembly of God church in Phillipsburg, uh, Pennsylvania. In 1958, though, he was just a skinny country preacher in a rural area, but he was reading in his living room one day, Life magazine, and he turned a page and saw the picture of seven boys, and that picture would, would change his life. Because what happened that day as he was reading it, he went back over it, over the next few days, he felt so compelled because the, 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 the plight, these boys had been arrested for a horrible crime in New York City. And so therefore, David Wilkerson became burdened for these young men. He felt compelled by God to go and do something about this. And so David Wilkerson, after many days, he kept feeling the Spirit of God draw him got in his car and drove to New York City. He had never been to New York City before. He wasn't even sure what he was going to do, but he wanted to talk to these defendants who were on trial in New York City for the death of Michael Farmer. He was a young polio victim that was brutally beaten by the members of this teenage gang. And so it's important that when he came into New York, he attempted to do so. He had no idea what God would ultimately do with his life. See, his, he was, he was brokenhearted for the condition of these young men. And so it led him to go to New York. And God was moving in the midst of that situation. And although he never was able to actually help those that had been arrested, David Wilkerson became burdened for the condition of these youth that were in street gangs in New York City and began to give his life to reaching them. He began to give his life because it wasn't the crime that was committed. It was the, the lostness, the anger, the hopelessness in the eyes of these young men. And so David Wilkerson became so burdened by the situation, so heartbroken by it, that he began to do ministry in the streets of New York City. And so he, he began to investigate what were the most lethal gangs in the city of New Haven at that, in, excuse me, in the city of New York City at that time. And he learned that the two most lethal gangs in the city were the Chaplains and the Mau Mau's. And they were both located up in Fort, the Fort Greene section of the city. And so David Wilkerson went up there and did what he only knew to do. He began to preach to these young men. He began to offer the opportunity to help them in their lives. And God began to move. God began to use that. In fact, others began to get behind it. Churches uh, raised money to buy an auditorium or to rent an auditorium in that area. And David Wilkerson went and preached to them. And that was the beginning of the ministry that David Wilkerson began to do. He, he realized that he needed to start something to help them get them off the streets. And so there was Teen Challenge born. In essence, he realized that for drug addiction, they needed the power of the Holy Spirit. And so David Wilkerson gave the rest of his lives to ministering to these troubled youth. In fact, the ministry grew well beyond New York City. 
That ministry, Teen Challenge, began to surround the whole world. And you see, David uh, Wilkerson is remembered, not because he made a better version of himself, but because he gave himself to making the world a better place. He gave his life to helping people less fortunate than himself. Why? Because he was heartbroken. Because he realized that this was something God was moving in him to do. And so here's my question for you. What breaks your heart? What is it that breaks your heart? Because compassion needs to move us. One of Jesus' most powerful, uh, um, we're, people who don't even know Christ generally know this parable. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's used even as a term in our culture today. A good, oh, he's a Good Samaritan. But it comes out of a story that Jesus told regarding what, tru- what, what, what truly was it. This, this, let me read you the context of this. It's found in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 10. It says, On an occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you've, correct, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Many times we make excuses. We try to narrow the gap of what we, we, we know what to do, but we make excuses why not, or we try to find a loophole around it. And so this man's asking, hey, who's my neighbor? And so this is where this parable comes from. This is where Jesus uh, uh, um, gives the answer to that question. He says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and, when he, and, and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so too a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, and let me just note for you for a moment, because Jesus crowd, he's speaking to a Jewish community at this point. And at this point, when he says the word a Samaritan, Samaritans were hated by the Jews. There was such racial uh, uh, tension between those two groups of people because Samaritans were half-breed Jews. When the northern uh, kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians, long before the the, uh, southern kingdom of Judah had fallen, the Assyrians had did what Nebuchadnezzar did. He had exported uh, um, Jewish people into the Assyrian kingdom, but he also planted Assyrians in Israel. And so these half-Syrian, half-Jewish people became Samaritans, and they had no dealings generally with the Jews. And so in this story, Jesus is now catching everybody off guard because he's going to make the hero of the story this Samaritan. And it's he and it says, but the Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Or some translations say he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. 
And when he had put the man on his own donkey, he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And so now Jesus comes, that's the end of his story, and he looks back at the, at the, the teacher of the law that asked him these questions. He says, which of these three do you think was neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Or some translations say, the one who had compassion on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. That's why being a Christ follower, living, for, living to make our world a better place is what our hearts should be dedicated to. Moving, by, moving with compassion is what we should be seeking in our life. And so that brings me back again to the question, what breaks our heart? Because when we devote our lives to showing love to others as Jesus directed us, it will cost us some of our lives. In fact, listen to these words. Jesus, when calling, this is found in Mark 8, 34. It says, calling a crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me. And that's what I'm hoping is that we are committed to following Jesus. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And see, in essence, Jesus is calling us to a life that at times requires us to deny ourselves. At times, it requires us to sacrifice some of our time, some of our, our resources, some of our time, our talent, or our treasures. It requires us because he said we need to lose the life we're currently living to gain one that's far bigger, far greater, one that's motivated by the gospel. And so it doesn't mean, listen, it doesn't mean that we need to quit our job, but it may mean we need to quit something. It doesn't necessarily mean that we were going to be a missionary and travel to a foreign country and leave this nation, but it may mean leaving our comfort zone. It doesn't necessarily mean that we need to give all of our money, but it may mean that we give a percentage of it. See, as Jesus followers, we're called to emulate his life. Jesus came to save mankind. What's interesting is this. Even when Jesus died on the cross, as he suffered and hung there, what he died of actually was a broken heart. When the Roman centurion jammed a spear up into his side and it says blood and water came out, Jesus' heart had ruptured. And that's why around that, 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 that the, the sack around his heart was filled with fluid in that way. And so John, when he wrote that, said it looked to him like it was blood and water. But Jesus had actually died of a broken heart. And his broken heart, his, it was his death that made the world a better place. It was Jesus' sacrifice that gave each and every one of us the opportunity to be forgiven of our sins and to become children of the living God. Jesus was a means to an end. He gave his life for others. That's what he again said. The Son of Man didn't come into the world 
to be served by the world. But he said he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for others. And so we need to begin to realize again that to be a better person means that we need to be about making the world a better place. It means that we should seek to be a means to an end. Why? Because being a means to an end is what gives life meaning. Jesus invites us to a life of purpose, to devote ourselves to being more than ourselves. Then we will have more than ourselves to show for ourselves. And so again, what breaks your heart? Allow God to, be the, to, to, to allow you to be a means to an end. Allow God to show you where we can make a difference in our world or in the life of somebody in, or in somebody's world. All of us can make the world a better place. All of us can do something to make a difference around us. And it's important that we begin that heart search. And I know this can be challenging, but I don't know where it lands with you. You and I need to be ones that are willing to wrestle that question to the ground. What breaks my heart? And then allow it to lead you somewhere to make a difference in our world. Till next time, this is Pastor Kathy.